pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. If we're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water, leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice on <laughs> it. I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> When will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. So, <laughs> welcome, everybody. Uh, because of Zoom updates, Catherine and I are just staring at each other in shock because the robots are talking to us and we weren't ready for it. Welcome to our recorded, and we know it, thank you, robot, podcast, Angreement, with me, Catherine. And me, Michelle. And in this podcast, we bring you three things every episode. A weird thing. A pop culture thing. And a research thing. And then we try to make them fit all together. With a fortune cookie saying you can take off until you come back and talk with us again. We hope that from last episode, you all just listened to some music and played some video games on our actionable fortune cookie. (laughs) But this week, Michelle, you go first. So take it away. So my weird thing starts with the fact that I went out of town overnight for the first time in well over a year. Um, We went camping in a cabin out in the middle of nowhere. It was lovely. We had a very good time. But because of that, I had to take my dog somewhere in the first time for over a year, which I hadn't really thought about the potential psychological side effects of that. Um, So my dog, he is a giant goofball. He is 14 years old and he's a big boxer pit bull mix. Um, he is a very, very kind, loving dog is never aggressive and is super friendly to everyone. Like everybody, he's big. So everybody's always afraid, but I'm like, no, trust me. Like you could be stabbing me. He'd just be like a friend, um, (laughs) a toy to play with. (laughs) So, um, really, really, really friendly. And when I Got his, you know, I normally just take him in the backyard because we never leave the house anymore. So when we went to the front door with his leash, he was so excited and he tried and he is certainly starting to show his age in this last year. Right. Like, I mean, he's, he's 14 years old, which is, he's I think 98 in dog years or whatever. He's an old man. And, um, he tried to get into the car and couldn't. So I had to like lift this 90 pound dog up into the car. Um, And so I I drive him out to my mom's house and he's so excited. He's so excited the whole time. He jumps down from the car. He's so excited. She has a bunch of beagles. He's like, and he he goes, he starts to go up the stairs to her house. And she has um, like the staircase that is like the stairs are not solid in between them, which all of the stairs that he climbs are and his foot slips under them and he fell. And um, I think that freaked him out. Like he was, he wasn't hurt, but I think that freaked him out. So he got in her house. He was still excited. He was looking at all of the windows and then he just sort of laid down and he, he fell asleep for a little while. And when he woke up again, he wouldn't move. 
And so we were really afraid that he had hurt himself when he fell, fell on the stairs, right? I'm like, oh gosh, he's hurt. And so I could not, I mean, this is a large dog. So if the large dog decides that he's not standing up, like he's just not going to stand up. Um, and so I, I was like, okay, well, let's just let him rest for a little while. Like maybe he hurt his leg, but I'm like, I can't go out of town and leave my mom with this 90 pound dog that won't stand up. Yeah. So I was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to have to cancel this trip? Um, but I was spending some time with my mom anyway. I'm like, we'll just check on him in a little bit. Like maybe he just needs to rest. And so I went back and got him and I put his leash on him and I pulled and he stood up, but he was, he was shaking like, um, and not the legs that he had fallen on, but like his whole body. And I was like, are you, what's wrong? And I'm like, oh, he's, he's scared of something. And when we went to the front door, he like did that the thing where he puts all four legs straight out and like, he wouldn't go out the front door. I'm like, okay, he's scared of these stairs. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, um, what if I try to take him out the back door, but the back door was just, I sunk up like almost to my knees in mud trying to take him out the back door, (laughs) but that worked. He went down the stairs. He was so clearly he was not physically injured, right? Like his body is working fine. But as soon as we went around the front and he saw those stairs again, he's just like, started shaking and was just flip like like not flipping out like wild but just like not acting like himself at all I was like what is wrong with my dog like I you know like he's he's a giant goofball he frequently comes barreling into a room slides across the whole floor and bangs into the wall I don't believe seen him more more than multiple times just slide straight and hard hard into things like there's no way that this little fall is that big of a deal for him so we took him over into uh the fenced in part of her yard and I was like okay I'm gonna let him loose and he'll like run around in here he just went over to the corner and like the kids were all trying to pet him and play with him which he loves kids and he he didn't like he just just was like looking at me and laid down and just wouldn't move and I'm like what is going on And so I was really, really, really worried. Um, But I got him back into her house and he was eating and drinking. And I'm like, okay, I'm just, he seems physically okay. Maybe, you know, this is just, he just got freaked out. Um, I'm like, you know, maybe there's like some senility or something. Cause you know, again, he's 14. Um, So my weird thing though, is that today, as I was scrolling through NPR, I saw an article called who let the dogs out. And it was an interview with um, some pet sitters who were talking about how, or the pet dog walkers who were talking about how their industry had just completely dried up during the pandemic because everybody was home. So nobody needed anybody to walk their dogs and how now all of a sudden they're too busy. They can't, they can't handle it. Like there's a huge rush on their services. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then an hour later, I was scrolling Facebook and I saw this article from the Atlantic that was much more intense. And it was like the poor abandoned pups of COVID. And I was like, what? And so I opened it up and a ton of people got dogs at the start of the lockdown because they knew that they would be home with them, right? And they got puppies. And those puppies got completely used to having a human being with them 24 hours a day. And now there's all these people who are having to go back to the office or even just like go out for dinner and they can't because their puppies are losing it, right? Like they're like, um, barking and whimpering and they're like, what are you doing? Even dogs that grew up accustomed to their owners leaving can have separation anxiety, but these dogs have known nothing else their whole lives. <gasps> oh, and 
so there's like, I mean, it's a serious problem. Like they're, they're talking about how there's all this, this huge spike in like dogs being put on medication for anxiety and people saying that they feel trapped in their house now because they don't know what to do. Cause their neighbors are like, Hey, you can't just leave your dog barking all day. And they're like, I don't know what, like, um, so I was just thinking about that. And I really, I don't know, obviously I'm not a I'm not a dog doctor. I don't even play one on TV. Um, but <laughs> but I think that he knew I was leaving because why else would I have brought him there? And I think I think it was anxiety about it. Before. Yeah, yes. This isn't even like his first time at this place. Oh no. And he yeah. I mean, normally, much like my kids, when I take them somewhere, like whatever, mom, buy, you know, like I don't even get a buy, right? Like he's like, oh, I'm here with all the fun stuff. And so I'm, I'm out at this cabin and I barely have cell reception, but every time I get somewhere with like one bar, I'm texting my mom. I'm like, is he okay? Is he okay? And, um, he wasn't, he wasn't eating or drinking. And I was like, am I going to have to, am I going to have to like come home? Like I'm hours away. Um, but then she's texting me. She's like, he's eating, he's drinking. He's starting to perk up a little bit. And by the time that I, like, by the time I came back to pick him up, he was fine and he was excited and he was happy and he was playing with everybody and he had gotten much more energetic, but I really think it was, it was like some kind of separation anxiety and like, yeah, I mean, he has been and and that, you know, he, we have both my um, partner and I have both worked outside of the home most of the time we've had him since he was a year old. So we've had him for 13 years. And so he's been left alone for long stretches of time, but for the past, you know, 14, 15 months or whatever, he's always had someone with him and he follows me from room to room. So like, if I go downstairs to do the dishes, he humps, like he's like, Oof, and, and follows <laughs> me, like, why would you just stay in one place? Uh. And throws himself dramatically to the floor to sleep in that room. <laughs> and then I leave and he's, and then he dramatically throws himself to the floor to sleep in that room. <laughs> so I think he just thinks he's supposed to be near me and he couldn't be. And I think that it caused this anxiety. So yeah, my this weird thing break. is that we have a whole lot of anxious dogs. Oh, poor guy. That's so fascinating. And I just, I didn't think about that at all. And I guess all those people getting dogs also didn't think about that. At first, I'm like, oh, how could you? But, like, I think if I had gotten a dog, I would not have thought about that at all. Well, and, I mean, what a great time to get a puppy when you can be home yeah. with it 24 hours a day to help, you know, you can housebreak it, you can you can socialize it to your family. But the article was also saying, like, most of these dogs have never been within six feet of a stranger because no yeah. one walks with it. Like, and they haven't been around other dogs and they have, like their socialization was really intense to their family, but not beyond that. And they think and that's whole, they don't know anything else, man. That now, now I'm comparing your dog to children and I've been seeing a lot of like Instagram posts and social media posts from friends who have really young, you know, they were like infants last year or one years old and now they're going out into the world and being like, oh, they're discovering these things that I took for granted, like um, fitting room mirrors and like eating in a restaurant. Things yeah. that year-olds, three-year-olds, one-year-olds just had no idea existed in the world. And so all these things, I've been I've been kind of fixated on that as like, man, and not ever meeting other children for a year. And I would have never thought dogs are also going to have these issues poor dogs poor, poor puppies actually. poor puppies 
poor all of us. We all need, we all need some breaks, man. I, I am not going to be good at interacting socially for a long time and uh, neither are dogs. So we're all, everyone gonna- just needs a break. I'm going to be weird out in the world. We're all going to need to just lay down and not move and be a little shaky. That's okay. <laughs> wait and wait for it to pass. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, my weird thing, I'm going to try not to, speaking of being a little weird and a little shaky, I'm going to try not to sob through my weird thing. Oh, goodness. So we both have sad, weird things. Up. It's absolutely not sad. <laughs> the funniest moment. <laughs> I'll go get there. Um, the weird thing is, what what is weird about this, other than me completely bawling at it at a weird moment, is I um for I don't know why. This is a podcast that I have not listened to in probably more than a year. I used to really like it. You know, you go in and out of mm-hmm. phases, you binge on things. But have you heard of the podcast called Science Versus? I have heard of it. I have not listened to it, but I've heard of it. I haven't listened to it in over a year. And for some reason, last week, I said, eh, let's check back in. And I didn't even listen to the newest episode. I listened to an episode of Science Versus called A Seedy Late Night Adventure, just called to me. And the weird thing is, it's an amazing, amazing episode. And I'll link it in the show notes because you should just listen to it. But it perfectly encapsulated all three of my things from last week's episode. It encapsulated seeds and growing and flourishing. It encapsulated um, COVID interrupting things, you know, to put things on pause. So it, it encapsulated like the I'm not languishing, I'm dormant, being a seed. What was my, oh, oh. <laughs> um, it included... My other thing was getting a library card. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much talked about. I learned, and I keep texting you and bothering you, all the things a library can do. And you, much like my mother, like, yeah, libraries are great. I'm like, (laughs) did you know you can check out board games at the library? Did you know that you can rent out workspaces at the library? You're like, yes, I know this. But I also found out that um, one of the libraries in the county library system has a seed library. Oh, that's awesome. Ours does not. Really, I don't know if maybe it does, but I don't plant things because I killed them. So I have a little guilt over those. That that might tempt me into trying again because yeah, the one of the libraries has a seed library and you can just go and get seeds from them, which is amazing. Fantastic. Huh. So that that's why it included that. And then my research thing last week was hunting for treasure, right? Buried treasure, like gold. And so this perfectly, perfectly encapsulated all three of those things in one thing in this beautiful podcast. And basically, it's about Professor William Beale, who began, he was a scientist mainly concerned with agriculture and seeds. And he invented new kinds of corn. He did a lot for agriculture. And um, he worked at Michigan State University And in 1879, he began a very long-term experiment because he wanted to figure out, apparently science to this day doesn't really know this, about um, how long can seeds go dormant, how long can they be dormant, and then still come back and grow. And so we have some ideas, but he wanted 
a very official, long-term scientific experiment to figure this out. And of course, there are various um, like post-apocalyptic seed libraries where they keep them at very cold temperatures. But he wanted to know if the possibility that we just have all these seed libraries in the earth where seeds are just discarded. And if they are kept in normal temperatures, in normal conditions of freezing and heat, will they still be able to come back? And how long can that be for? So in 1879, William Beale buried a bunch of bottles. He filled them with sand, but left them open so the seeds would still be available to the conditions, the weather conditions. And he buried these bottles all over what eventually became most of Michigan State University's campus. And this project now has to be kept super secret because they don't want people going and looking for them all over the campus. So at the time this podcast started recording, there was only one person alive, which was um, Professor Frank Toluski, who knew where they were. And so when he was 40, he got to dig up a bottle. And when the podcast was recording, he was 60. And he said, this might be my last dig. So he had to decide who he was going to pass this knowledge on to. And so the podcast was like, okay, he's, they're going to go dig it up in April of 2020, which the whole campus of Michigan State University got shut down. They waited and waited. And then last month, well, early May, he was able to do it. And he took his team and they went and they dug it up. And just hearing people talk about like, we get to go do this, this thing that started over well over a hundred years ago, we get to go be a part of this and we get to go. And, you know, we, we're going to say to him, to Frank Tilowski, like, we got this, we're going to take it over for you. And he's carrying on the legacy of William Beale and you go onto campus. They have to do it at night. So no one knows and gets tipped off to where they are. There are just some things that really make me love humanity. And last episode, you mentioned a lot, you know, people are putting gas in bags. Sometimes it is very difficult, very difficult to love humanity as a whole. But when there are things that really hit me and I go, my goodness, I love people. And a lot of times, stupidly, it's memes. I'm just like, people are cool. I mean, we've talked about my love for shit posting groups and that's all they are. So yeah, I'm with you. Yes. Um, something else that you shared with me that I come back to in my times of great sadness is the Nashville Parthenon and the Athena in that, which makes me feel stupid. But one of the times I loved humanity most, we went together to see the Nashville Parthenon was going inside and being blown away by how huge the Athena is, which I didn't know because I study art history and like you read about it, but until you go and see it and then realizing that some ancient civilization made that. And then we in America said, we will also make us that. too, us too. <laughs> There's a kitschy tourist site that also teaches us anyway. Um, but one of the things that will always hit me is people in academia continuing on like historical legacies and just loving their work 
and loving that historical legacy. And so I'm listening and they had to put it on pause because of COVID. And then um, they finally get to go dig it up and they find the bottle and they don't know if the seeds will sprout. And I'm listening, I'm standing in the kitchen. My spouse is in the other room working. He has to finish a book. It's due next week. He has headphones on because I won't stop interrupting him. He has had to isolate himself from me. And I standing there listening to a happy podcast. And in the moment where they say, and then we got one of them to germinate, one of the seeds grew. I just started crying and crying and he came rushing in and he went, Oh my God, what's wrong. And he told me he really thought someone had died died or something it sounded like because he heard me over his headphones and then I couldn't talk and he's like listening to the podcast and it's the scientist going yep it was this kind of seed and it sprouted and we were happy he's like what is wrong with you I'm like they loved the seeds and they grew and it's been 150 years and it is great um so <laughs> people may put some people may put gas in bags, but some people put seeds in bottles. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then I I think I give away most of the episode, but it can't convey it. And here's what I'll give you so you go listen to it is that um, Frank Tulowski even made up a song that he performs about how much he loves this project. <laughs> It's I was so going to say, I don't feel like I need to listen to it, but maybe I do. Cause that's, yeah. Um, yeah. It's so cute. So the weird thing is how well that encapsulated all the things from even like they had to go find this buried treasure and they were reading the map wrong. And yeah. It's to seed libraries, to, um, to seeds themselves and having to wait because of COVID. And then they still grew because they're seeds like we talked about. And, um, so the weird thing is that, but the weird thing is also that it really, oh, it made me cry so hard. I, I also just have to say that when we get to my research thing, I want everybody to remember that we do not talk about these in advance. Ooh. Because, um, there is a real strong connection that I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this is happening. So um, I faces I went, you were like, you yep. were holding your hands up. Yep. It's going to be, it's going to be wild. All right. Nice. So that brings us to pop culture. All right. So my pop culture thing is uh, I've talked on here before about how for a very long time I could not listen to audiobooks. And I thought it was because I was like incompetent with my attention. And then I found out that it's because I have aphantasia and have no mind's eye, but instead I have a constant inner monologue. So it was like competing voices, but I have found tricks to be able to listen to audiobooks. So um, recently I have been listening to audiobooks and it is, I am enjoying, I have like a whole like rotating list of different kinds of books. Like these are the ones I'm listening to and these are the ones I'm reading. So I probably have like six books going at any given time. And it just makes me, I feel, I feel good about it. But my pop culture thing is that I was listening. Um, and I did like took this on vacation with me. So I was listening to it like while I was hiking and cause I can't listen to audiobooks. So I'm holding still, I have to be no, moving, yeah. like doing the dishes, doing cleaning my house or like on the treadmill or off hiking. That's, that's the only time I can listen to them. So I was listening to The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Do you know this book? No. Okay. So I, it's a good book, 
Um, I did not, I was, it came very, very highly recommended and I maybe had my expectations up a little too high. It's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. It is a book about um, a woman named Addie LaRue who is uh, born in the, like, I think the story starts out in 1714 and she's like 20 years old. So I guess she was born in the late 1600s in France. And she is, as many women of that time, promised into a particular kind of life, right? She's in a very small village and... um, she she kind of manages to avoid getting married because she doesn't want that. And, but her, the doors around her are just always closing, right? Like she wants a life of adventure and it's just not in the cards for her. And then a man in her village, um, his wife dies in childbirth when uh, he ha- already has like two young children and his wife dies in childbirth. And she's like the eligible bachelorette of them. They're like, well, it's your job. Go marry him now and raise his kids. And um, so she basically gets like promised to him and she does not want that. So she is trying to pray. The book opens with the phrase, never pray to the gods who answer after dark. And so she's been like praying to these like, you know, forest gods to please, you know, come help her and none of them come. But on the day of her wedding, she runs off into the woods and is praying, praying, praying and doesn't realize it has gotten dark. So, um, the gods who answer after dark answer. And she, this all happens at the very beginning. So I'm not even spoiling anything yet. Um, she trades her soul essentially for freedom is what she's asked for. And, and that she can have her soul as long as she wants it. So basically she has gotten immortality, but the, the demon figure or the darkness as it's called in the book has, the, the way that he has given her what she asked for is to make it where no one can remember her. So um, if she even like, cause she said, I don't want to belong to anyone. And so the only way to not belong to anyone is for no one to remember you. Right. So you uh, like it, if she walks into a room, she can sit and talk with that person. But as soon as she's out of their sight, it, when she, they see her again, they'll have no memory of who she is, um, which means she can't even like order food at a restaurant because when the waiter walks away, they have they have no memory of her placing the order right uh she can't get a job she can't so like basically has just eliminated her from the world um and i won't give away any more than that it's it's very interesting it's long i feel like it has some clever twists and turns but i feel like my critical analysis of it would be that the clever turn starts happening either way too early in the book or the book is way too long because it just takes too long to get there but it is very, very beautifully written. And that's that's where my pop culture thing is coming in. Is it's just very long, flowing sentences, this very like uh poetic cadence. And if I, I when I this happens when I read books too, that cadence gets in my brain. So like mm. my inner monologue will start to pick that up, right? So it'll be like, oh, so like as I'm, you know, narrating to myself what I'm going about the day, I'll hear those rhythms and those sentence structures start to come in. And so as soon as I finished that book, I started listening to the book that you recommended to me that no one is talking about this. Which is a very particular syntax, especially in the first half. <laughs> Which I'm very, I'm, I'm only like half an hour into it. Not long and beautiful. <laughs> and this syntax is like these very short clipped, almost sentence fragments of just like, boop, 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 boop. 
And I feel like it broke my brain a little. So that's, that's my pop culture thing is how I went from these like long flowing to these like, like really quick little, uh, like almost like sort of like tweet culture, but not even that. That book is no one is talking about this is about is kind of, it's supposed to be very much a book about the internet written in internet speak in many ways yeah and the, and the fragmented like here's a thing here's a thing here's a thing here's a thing because the invisible life of Addie LaRue would like you know hyper fixate on the description of these bed sheets or this flower and this is like you know here's a statement about a war here's a statement about how the human heart works here's a statement you know like just um and it was just really really jarring to go from one from the other yeah. and not in not in content in the in the cadence and so the the cadence of those two books and um, the juxtaposition of them is that's my pop culture thing. Oh, that's making my brain break. Just thinking about that. <laughs> but the idea of like, what does it mean to belong to someone? That was, that's really interesting. And they do a very good job of really thinking through the details of that curse and like what, what it would, cause like um, she can't break things, but she can steal them because like to break things is she can't write cause she can't leave a mark. Um, but to steal things is like um, nobody witnesses it. So it doesn't leave a mark like, cause nobody knows. But breaking is so permanent. Yeah. Oh, that's so, see, that's really cool. It reminds me, have you ever read the brief history of the dead? No. <gasps> oh, okay. I'm, <laughs> I won't, how good for podcast listening. Um, I won't say anything about it. Cause, and don't read anything about it. I just okay. remember the book. I looked it up on Amazon and even the description of it gives it away. And it's not like the most mind-blowingly smart book you'll ever read, but it's good. And it's very, um, it's kind of like how you're describing this, where that idea is just really one worth thinking about, about what is memory and what's being a person and what's knowing other people and being known by other people. Um, that does the same thing in a very different way. So, so my, I had so much trouble choosing a pop culture this week. I oh, feel like, um, usually the easiest one I'm interested. Well, there was just too much. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes more sense. This one I could not resist and I could not sleep on, especially because time is ticking down on it. There is a theater company called fake friends. They have brought us circle jerk which I loved. They have brought us Ratatouille, the musical, TikTok musical, which I also made me cry. I cry it a lot. And last week they started a new play. It's called This American Wife. And it was just as good as the other two. I absolutely love it. And I love them. And it is the final live performance is happening like this Friday. So by the time you're hearing this podcast, it's too late to see it live. But until June 6th, they are doing on demand, which I think is maybe like you have two days. If you are hearing my voice right now, the Thursday this comes out, you have two days. So go see it. Um, and so this American Wife, again, fake friends is Michael Breslin, Patrick Foley. They're part of it always. And um, another person that they went to Yale with um, Joaquin Dante Powell. This American Wife is ostensibly a theatrical live stream production of, 
about their these three people's love of the Real Housewives franchise. Ostensibly. Ostensibly. I, I caught that word. That's interesting. Okay. It's about so much more than that. I really want to somehow do something. This is how much I love it. And I can't stop thinking about this play about the Real Housewives TV show. So the high-low mix, because I can't stop thinking about it. I want to write a million articles about this play. But, you know, you know me. The high-low mix of this, I love. I love it. It's what I'm all about. It's my sweet spot. Early on, there's a quote from one of the actors. that's like, I love three things in this world. And it's like Brecht, Walter Benjamin, and the Real Housewives franchise. (laughs) You're speaking right to your soul. My soul. Funnily enough, though, for all the TV I've seen in my life, I've never watched any of the Real Housewives. I have not. I've had to write about them for my ghostwriting gig, but I have not seen any other than clips. So I did my homework. I watched a few episodes in preparation for the theater, for my night at the theater. But according to... um, their dramaturg for Frake Friends, Ariel Siebert, a real housewife is a person known for her knownness. And so the notion of her having a true self, a reality, is as unknowable to me as the place between my shoulder blades. A photographer once wrote something like, reality is not life itself. A physicist, Heisenberg, wrote something similar. Perhaps the phenomenon we endlessly discuss is not so much fakeness as an excess of reality. I wrote that, not me, Ariel Siebert, who I'm quoting now. To see yourself on television is to have your existence confirmed. I'm trying not to say martyr, trying not to say eternal life, trying not to say apotheosis or humiliation because it's in between. The promise exists for all of us, in gridded as we are in every screen. The self needs a medium. Who cares who you are when you're alone anymore? So that's kind of how they're shaping what a housewife is, a housewife, not a housewife, but a real housewife. Real house, right? Yes. Which is an entirely different thing. Which the- is so, cause like, again, I haven't seen the show, but when I had to write about it, like it's very important to say she was demoted to friend of the house. She was like, if you like to be a housewife is a thing. It is a specific status and you can lose it and you can gain it. And it, yeah, Absolutely. Because it is ultimately a TV production. They talk at the end of this of who gets fired and how that ruins their lives in various ways, in various different cities, um, across different right geographical locations. But also they talk a lot about race in this and how it means something different to be a real housewife of Atlanta than it does of Beverly Hills. And um, so and also in watching three episodes, I realized they're not all housewives. Some of them are not married. Some of them don't have children. Um, the beginning episode, the beginning of any episode of this, they show each housewife and she has a little quote, which I love. Those little quotes are very funny. And then they show their family in the background. And it took me two episodes of watching the New York one to realize one, her only family is her dog. And I'm like, cool. That is, by the way, on the record, my favorite housewife is the one who only has a dog. Her name is Sonia which is Circle Jerk was really brilliant for how it rethought early on in the pandemic, how can theater be different now? How can we live stream it? What this did, even though it was live streamed, was they rented a McMansion out in like the Hamptons, which of course that's where the housewives live. Right. So the whole thing was staged in this McMansion 
And the actual medium specificity of this wasn't live stream theater. It was a McMansion, which I'm obsessed with the architecture. I love, I think we've talked about it like McMansion hell. Um, and so it did a lot of interesting things about how McMansions are often so open that you can run and loop through them. You can just go in a circle around and around and around. And they did that in really cool ways. And they put cameras everywhere. There were cameras in the fridge. There were cameras in the oven. There were cameras in the light fixtures. And they were really smart about that. So the medium specificity of this play, A, is the McMansion. And they're super, super smart about that. And B, I could not help but think about how smart it was. There's been so much done on reality TV, but this was like really smart about it. And it made me think of this quote, which is often misattributed to Marshall McLuhan, I had to find out for this that it's actually someone named Father John Culkin, who was a professor at Fordham University, that says, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. So that's usually about, right? That's about technology usually. And there's like usually two schools of thought. And when you're teaching um, the history of technology, you have to say like, there's a school of thought that we create our technology or our technology creates us. And this but of course- Everyone goes back to, we shape it, then it shapes us. Yeah. I actually learned that comes from a quote from Winston Churchill, who said, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us, which it's maybe think the form of a tool, right? Like, yeah, where they talk about the very real world effects that this show has and how it has shaped us culturally in ways you might not even imagine and the interconnectivity of all of this. And it really kind of blew my mind and... Yeah, it made me think like we made reality TV, but now reality TV makes us yeah. and there is no way out of that. Yeah, no, it's I mean, it's so pervasive. Like I don't even watch much reality TV, but I hear myself like using catchphrases from it and um, considering that perspective and like, you know, how, what role would you fill? Because, you know, every show has these little tropes that they place people in. And absolutely. research thing is I hope it's not long I feel like it might go okay well I'm just gonna dive in I love I'm just gonna say I love when um I'm editing these that it's always like okay there goes weird thing there goes pop culture we're just down to the final thing and yet when I look at the bar where we're at it's it's always like not even a quarter of the way through research well, gets us. Guess what? We we both do a lot of and and it sometimes takes us a long time to figure out. We usually get like the the foundation of the connection pretty quick, but to figure out how to put it into our pithy little fortune cookie saying that, that can take us a while. We can through because again, yeah. we don't discuss this beforehand. This is no, all just on this the fly. You're seeing it happen right here. I don't I'm even think about how I, I know my research is too long, but but you're getting it anyway. All right. That's so, a lot. My research thing is that I, again, left my house, which was exciting. And as I left my house, I drove south. I um, went to, I was almost at the Arkansas border to go to this cabin. And as we were driving, I saw so many armadillo carcasses on the side of the road. And I was like, this is weird. I've never seen 
I mean, I've occasionally seen like one, but there was I mean, probably 30. I'm like, well, how many are we, is the world just littered? Cause surely like, I don't think all of them are getting hit by cars. So if this is how many you see as roadkill, there must just be armadillos everywhere. Right. Um, and so, and then as I was driving to go pick up my, you know, hopefully no longer traumatized dog, I saw some there too. And that's, pretty far north in Missouri, right? Like that's in the middle of Missouri. And so uh. I was like, what are these doing here? So I wanted to uh, research and I had heard that like armadillos were moving north, but this just seemed really far north for them to be. And so I, I wanted to find out about armadillo expansion in the United States. And boy, did I, I not heard that. That's news to me. And that's fascinating. It is fascinating. So buckle up. <laughs> Dillos originated in South America and about half of all of the animals that moved from South to North America via the Panamanian land bridge about 3 million years ago were, I'm probably going to pronounce this one wrong, Xenarthra, Xenarthra, I'm going to go with Xenarthra. And I have no idea. (laughs) Those are armadillos, sloths, and anteaters. So for much of North America's history from 3 million years ago until about 10,000 years ago, there were lots of these types of creatures populating the land and they had all come from South America to the North via this land bridge. And then around 10,000 years ago, all of the North American armadillos went extinct. So they were just, there was none in North America. Prior to 1850, they don't think there were any armadillos North of the Rio Grande. And they likely originally crossed as stowaways on human transport because even though armadillos can swim, that big of a river is too big of a barrier for them. So it wasn't until humans were frequently moving back and forth across the river that armadillos stowed away and managed to make it across. Also, they were a big food source for humans. So some of them may have been intentionally brought across to eat and then gotten away. And so that started to populate the South. They tend to stay put unless their population gets too high. So as long as their population is at a steady rate, they tend they don't tend to wander. But by the 1880s, they were obviously present in Texas and they were, you know, kind of taking taking hold in the southern United States. In the 1920s, Florida saw a huge armadillo population surge, which was like, how did they get from Texas to Florida? Well, they didn't. A small zoo in Florida released a few and they populated from there. And then some escaped from a circus in Florida in 1936 and they got involved in the populating work too. They also frequently stow away in cattle cars, which created even more migration. So they're just slowly spreading. Um, This is, but a lot of people are attributing it to climate change because armadillos have a pretty specific climate need in order to do well. And we're seeing other animals like the white-footed mice and southern flying squirrels moving northward because temperatures are rising. And so we're seeing those populations expanding. Um, The benefit, one benefit, is that they're going to help us deal with fire ants, which are also coming north as the uh, temperatures rise, but they're probably going to kill off the quail populations because quail are already suffering and armadillos eat them. So armadillos eat quail. Yeah. They break into their nests. Very little about armadillos, except they can jump very surprisingly high. Mm, I don't know if they eat the quails themselves or quail eggs. Or their eggs. Ah, gotcha. 
Um, I was, I did not, I'm very afraid now of fire ants. I thought the benefit was that maybe Catherine will get to see a flying squirrel. <laughs> no, it's fire ants. No, it's okay. fire ants. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. <laughs> um, so here's a quote from one of the articles and I'll send that so we can put this in the show notes. Yeah. I found a lot of this on a, there's a, a very armadilloonline.org has lots and lots and lots of very dedicated to their <laughs> armadillo. Like the squirrel board. <laughs> like the squirrel board um armadillos cannot establish stable colonies if the average january temperature is below 28 degrees and they require constant water sources so their estimated possible range includes pretty much where i live is the northernmost midwest border currently in fact i looked it up and the current january average temp for st louis which is the lowest month of the year is 23 degrees which makes me wonder if the armadillos are a better measure than our um whatever we're using to measure that because obviously they're here. And so I wonder, I don't know how far back we go to make an average. So like if if that's like an average over the last five years, then maybe the higher end of that, it seems like it has probably gotten warmer. And, um, but they have mapped it out and they could go North as far as the Carolinas, West Virginia, and even Southern Pennsylvania. But right now it looks like the Mississippi River is a barrier, much like the Rio Grande was at one point. And so um, we'll have to, you know, see if they stow away on some barges and make it across because they could probably survive in other areas on the other side, east of the east of the Mississippi. And again, they don't tend to move unless they get overpopulated. So we'll have to see sort of where, where the armadillos end up. Clearly. But. Oh. No, yeah. No, I'm not done. Oh, of course not. <laughs> so there was one little throwaway line in the midst of this big thing <laughs> that I read about the armadillos. This is where this is where we go off the rails a little bit. All right. That part of what helped the armadillos was their ability to delay implantation as they are, you know, gestating babies so that they can get to favorable conditions to repopulate. I was like, wait, what? And they just kind of like dropped that in casually as if we all know this. And we all know that they can just, they can, they do really good family planning and their bodies through sheer will. So I went to go look that up. And the very first thing that came up was a Washington Post article from 1988 And so I was like, what, why is this the first hit? But it was a fascinating article. So in 1988, they had just discovered that nine banded armadillos can delay implantation after mating for up to two years. So they had known that they could do it for three to four months, which apparently is not that uncommon in some kinds of animals, um, which I'll talk about more in just- That's cool in and of itself. But up to two years Um, and- the reason that they were able to verify that, so somebody said it and they were like, no, 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 that's not true. But they were able to verify it because they had a bunch of armadillos in labs where they could experiment on them because at least in 1988, armadillos were the only known non-human animal that could get leprosy. So they were using them in labs to study leprosy. And it independently, two different labs verified that yes, these armadillos can delay gestation a lot longer or uh, implantation a lot longer than we thought. So this means that an armadillo could give birth. They have a five month gestation period. So they could give birth anywhere from five months to almost 30 months after mating. 
until so it, it so in theory till until the conditions are right it, 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 it so they almost always give birth to identical quadruplets almost always oh and a quote from the 1988 article says there's something awfully interesting going on here and we think it may have practical significance if we could learn how to preserve human embryos without freezing so uh, when the armadillo is stressed, that early blastocyte, so it does, it turns into a blastocyte, and then it just, quote, floats in the uterus and does not implant until the conditions are better so that it can, it can implant. And I was like, okay, so this was 1988. Let me go see what I can find out from a more recent article, see if we know more about this, right? Yeah, so what I, have we learned since then? I found an article from 2020, and this talked more about the, con- this, ability to delay implantation in general, and it's called diapause, and it occurs in bears, armadillos, seals, some otters, badgers, and weasel-like animals. And bears, for instance, this is just part of their natural reproductive cycle. Like it's not- That makes sense for bears. Bears are cool like that. Bears have a lot of self-control, like with hibernation and stuff. And that's, that's exactly, so the way that it works is that um, bears only implant embryos when their body, when they have enough body fat stored up. So <laughs> that so makes the, me think, do you know about the fat bear competition? Yes. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so, so a female bear will mate and then go eat, 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 eat. And the egg will not, or the blastocyte will not implant until she has enough fat stored up to survive that. Smart. Um, and so in the, so over the years, we have learned that this is um, because of an enzyme that regulates cell processes. And in these animals, that inhibition of the enzyme causes diapause. For some animals, it's part of their normal reproductive cycle, but for others, it only occurs when there's extreme stress. That's like, hey, you can't have a baby right now. Um, and they're still, as of 2020, trying to figure out how to use this knowledge to help with human fertilization processes. But they also think that it has promise for cancer research, because if you can figure out how to shut off the... Yeah. To shut that blast. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But I wonder, did you read in your research anyway, like what, what the site for practical application in humans would be? To be able to keep um, fertilized embryos without, because right now it's, it's very expensive and difficult. Without cold storage. Yeah. Oh, okay. Not like to have this be, because could you imagine like the human population would just drop it. We're all stressed. We're always stressed. Yeah. If we just had this enzyme, there wouldn't have been any COVID babies, I feel like. This is fascinating. I didn't know animals could do this. It's wild. Also, the connection between your seeds. Yeah. You said, accidentally even said gestation instead of implementation because it's so overlapping. (laughs) Seeds and armadillos can just wait until they're ready. Wait and wait and wait. Until the the conditions are right. That's amazing for so many reasons. I can't believe there are armadillos in Missouri. Isn't that weird? That's so weird. That and, it, and it's also very weird to me that like, if we think about apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic films, they're getting it wrong. Like the day after tomorrow, not enough armadillos <laughs> in North America. Right. The armadillos would just be all the way to Canada, fools. Yeah. You need to rethink this. We need more armadillos. 
delaying their pregnancies. That's amazing. <laughs> okay. Whew. Gotta take that in. But what? It makes me just love nature. I whew. And I want to see a flying squirrel. Okay. But not fire ants? Not fire. No, thank you. Okay. I am going to apologize in advance because mine is too long. But I um that's why this is research. This was going, this could have been pop culture. This definitely could have been a weird thing. It starts as a weird thing. Speaking of Florida, um, I was today years old when I realized Florida, Florida. It did take me a while to realize that, but I think it was, you know, still several years ago. I should have realized it a long time ago. One of the only, I hate running. One of the only songs that can make me run is Club Can't Handle Me. That gets it. And it also reminded me, because I'm going to talk about Florida a little, um, the very early on in Atlanta, the whole running joke about Florida and uh, Lakeith Stanfield's character. I like Florida. It's fine. <laughs> Research. I thought it would be a lot more about Florida. It turned out not to be as much about That's Florida. That's what research does to you. Tricks you. You think, you think you're looking up how did armadillos get in Missouri and suddenly you're learning about delaying pregnancies. In about 15 minutes, you're just going to be hearing a lot of facts about the country of San Marino. So get ready. Now you put your seatbelt on. <laughs> um, so this started with the weird thing and a question of why was Florida at Eurovision? This year, um, Eurovision, which I am obsessed with, and I will talk about it in a second, and I'm watching, and all of a sudden, um, they announce that the next act up, which was the country of San Marino, will be featuring Flo Rida. Flo Rida? Yeah. Million-selling rap artist Flo Rida. Don't know how he got involved. And did he stop for petrol driving through San Marino? We don't know. Very, very exciting. And he did great. He did great. His performance was wonderful. But why? Why was Florida at Eurovision? So that's my question. That I he's well, he was almost not there because he had to judge a bikini contest in Miami. I learned almost missed out and missed his plane. So this took a lot of research, and I didn't really find a satisfying answer. I'll tell you that. But I found out a lot of other stuff. So for the for those of you who don't know, and I think a lot more people know what Eurovision is these days because it has a lot of pop. Yeah, which that movie did not represent it well, I'm going to say. There was a Will Ferrell movie on Netflix about Eurovision. And there's now going to be a a reality TV show called the U.S. The American Song Contest, where like a bunch of people involved in Eurovision are bringing it to America as a reality TV show. And every state is going to enter. Okay. I don't think that's a good idea. What I think what we don't need now right now is like tribalist, nationalist, state fights for even if it's for songs. The idea of Eurovision is that it brings Europe together. And I think they thought, oh, this will bring America together. But I don't think you can do the same. American states. We put gasoline in bags. We put gasoline. Yeah, we might (laughs) find seeds. We may put seeds in bottles. But we also put gasoline in bags. No. So Eurovision, basically, it's an international, uh, mainly European song competition organized by the European Broadcasting Union. And it has participants, again, representing mainly European countries, not just European countries, 
The rule is basically that if you are part of the European Broadcasting Union and you pay enough money into that, they'll let you in. Like Australia a few years ago was allowed into Eurovision as a contestant. So every participating country submits an original song to be performed and um, other countries vote for them. You can't vote for yourself. It's cool. It's been held every year since 1956, except for last year because of COVID. And I love Eurovision so much that I threw my own Eurovision. I participated. It was great fun. That was the first Eurovision I'd ever seen. So it was the first one you saw and you were part of it. I asked friends, including Michelle and family, you and your daughter, uh, were judges and I made you, I made everyone watch my favorite Eurovision entries of all time and you judged them and it was really fun. Thank you for being a part of it. It was a lot of fun. Um, I think to everyone's great relief, Eurovision is back this year. So I didn't force friends and family to um, enter into one with me, but every year since 1956, last year was the only one they ever missed. And so it's the longest running international televised music competition. It's basically one of the world's longest running TV shows. So it's founding stemmed from the desire to promote cooperation across Europe after World War II. So it is this kind of coming together. What will Europe be post-World War II? And because of that, it there is a lot. And because of the voting system where every country that participates gives out points and you can't vote for yourself, there's a lot of really interesting geopolitics and how people vote. Um, and the contest has been described as containing political ele- elements in its voting process. Yeah, of course. Of course it does. And I was happy to find that there are many dozens and dozens of academic papers have been published on how the voting in Eurovision works. And um Yeah, there's different arguments. There's the perception that countries will give votes more frequently and in higher quantities to other countries based on political relationship. So you watch the competition and everyone perform their songs, but the whole second half, because it's about four or five hours long, is watching who gives points to who, and that's really interesting. Other geopolitical stuff of interest. The conflict continuing between Armenia and Azerbaijan has affected the contest on many occasions. Interactions between Russia and Ukraine in the contest had originally, when it started, been very positive, but we know how that's going. Um, Political relations soured between the two countries, so too have their relations at Eurovision, and complaints were leveled against Ukraine's winning song in 2016, which was called 1944, whose lyrics referenced the deportation of the Crimean Tatars, Tartars, but which the Russian delegation claimed had a greater political meaning in light of Russia's annexation of Crimea. Um, and technically, the rules of Eurovision say you can't make any political statements. It's not a political show. And yet they do say, because of that, And because you have every country in Europe and other countries together performing songs saying we're not political, it's one of the most political things you could have. Um, This year in 2021, Belarus's planned entry caused controversy. And in the wake of demonstrations against disputed election results there, it was disqualified as being too political. And now we know you know, but they would not disqualify it for Belarus, like forcing planes to land. But the song was too political, so they were out. 
Another big one this year is that Israel participates in the Eurovision Song Contest. And the contestant this year had to have super, super tons of security. And most people, not most people, but a lot of people wanted to boycott the contest altogether. They didn't want Israel to participate because of their ongoing genocide of the Palestinian people. Palestine does not participate in Eurovision. In 2018, Israel won. And so in 2019, it was held in Tel Aviv. And there was a lot of upset. Iceland was heavily fined. And it was almost discussed that they wouldn't be allowed the next year for holding up a Palestinian flag during their performance. So it, it is interesting that they say, this is not political. We need all countries to be able to come and perform no matter what is happening in the world. And this year, more than a lot of years past, there have been these times where like Ukraine would sing, like when, when they were, when Russia was um, the annexation of Crimea, um, Ukraine had a song that was like, we're counting down, our days are numbered. And then Russia was like, one step over the line, we're coming for you. That was the lyrics of theirs that year. And this year, there were two, I want to really quick, as I'm getting to the question of why Flowrider was there. Um, Israel's participation this year, it was rough, right? Like, this happened on at the time that you're hearing this, like almost two weeks ago, but it happened very recently. And um, so the contestant from Israel is a very young woman named Eden Aline, and her song was called Set Me Free. And the lyrics are like, set me free. And it's hard because <laughs> she's an insanely talented performer. It was a, it was a bop. And you're like, this is a great song. But at the same time, right, it's this argument that I always feel is important about, like, people are like, you have to separate the artist from the art. And I think that is bullshit. And you don't. And yet countries, especially like Russia has always done this and they did it this year, too. But countries that are the most like doing wrong things, um, committing actively like genocidal acts uh, will then like put the cutest little songstress up there so um this was the first like you don't want to hate on her this was the first time an ethiopian artist was ever on eurovision because she's originally from ethiopia and so i learned a lot because i'm like why is israel putting up someone from ethiopia i learned that there are no rules in eurovision about who performs being linked to the country they're performing for there are no rules they don't have to be from that country. However, Eden Aline is from Israel. She lives in Jerusalem. Her family immigrated from Ethiopia. And in doing this research, I learned a lot. It's a long storied history that I will not get in here into now because I will not do it justice. But I learned that in Ethiopia, there is a large Jewish population that sent that decade after decade after decade asked to be allowed into Israel because they were being persecuted. And finally, um, in the early 1900s, and then again in 1980, and then again later, the U.S. paid Israel like $35 million to take refugees from Ethiopia and allow them into Israel because there's a, there is a Jewish population there. And so her family 
emigrated from Ethiopia. So she does live in Jerusalem. And so that's important that it's the first ever Ethiopian artist on the Eurovision stage. She also, fun fact, hit the highest note ever on the Eurovision stage, a B6 note. It's a great song. And yet you don't want to be like, woo, good job. But in this, it's pure propaganda that they're doing. But I learned a lot about immigration in Israel. Cool. Russia this year, again, had a great song. (laughs) It was by a young woman named Maniza. And the whole time I'm like, this is great, but what is this propaganda? What is Russia doing? The song was called Russian Women. It was a very pro-woman feminist anthem about how strong and free Russian women are. It was great rapping and singing. The general message of her being there was very not unlike Eden Aline, very pro-immigration. And they had this whole wall of women all across Russia singing with her at one point. And the whole time, like, tell like tell that to Pussy Riot, right? Who was like in labor camps forever because of Putin, who's still in power right. in Russia. But again, the propaganda at work here is really interesting. Because it's not at odds with her as a performer. I looked into her. Her father did not want her to begin a singing career because um, this is the Russian artist now, Maniza. Um, He didn't think it was a suitable career choice for a Muslim woman. And her grandfather was, um, she's actually from Tajikistan. He And her grandfather was a Tajik writer and a journalist. He has a monument dedicated to his honor And her great-grandmother was one of the first women in Tajikistan to remove her veil and begin a career of her own. And in response to this, she had her children removed from her. Um, And basically, they were eventually forced to flee the country during the civil war in Tajikistan and emigrated to Moscow. So again, she lives in Moscow. She's Russian, but she's an immigrant. And so that is like a super pro-feminist thing that her grandma was like forced, her family was forced out of the country for these feminist acts. And she wasn't even going to be allowed to be a singer because that's not a good career for women. And now she's doing it and she can do it. But it's just such pure propaganda at the same time. And I know I'm going on and on and on and I apologize, but it was, this year was the best Eurovision in recent memory. But it was also just very, very weird because there's a and lot to, going on in the world. And to have all those clearly political messages, as you're saying, like, there's no politics here is always very frustrating. Like, because we do that a lot, right? Like, I, I'm on so many Facebook groups that are like, politics aren't allowed here. I'm like, all that means is that there is some standard political belief. And if anyone dissents from that, you're going to kick them out. Like, it, yes. because, yeah, that... There's no such thing as there are no politics if there are humans involved because everything we do is political. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. So anyway, what does that have to do with Florida? Nothing. What but I just want to set the stage for when Florida came out. This has all happened. He performed last, and you're just like you're already in a tailspin because of all this. And they're like, what? And I do want to reiterate, this was like the best Eurovision recent memory. It was amazing was there performing to represent San Marino. And I did not know anything about San Marino. He was there to perform a song, but with the Italian singer, Senhit. And as I said, I learned 
that you actually don't have to have any relation to the country you're performing for. Florider is not from San Marino. He did not emigrate there or anything. And then Senhit, who he does the song with, um, also not from San Marino, even though it's very close to Italy and she's Italian. I did not know anything about San Marino. And it is, it covers a land area of just over 24 square miles and has about 33,000 people. It's has the earliest written governing documents still in effect, which is pretty cool. And its constitution dictates that its democratically elected legislator must elect two heads of state every six months. That's a lot. For 33,000 people, like I think everyone ends up serving. Um, it's known as the captain's regent and the two heads of state serve concurrently and they hold equal powers until their term expires after six months. And they're chosen from opposing parties. So you always have the opposing parties are both in power with equal power and they rotate out every six what months. More than two parties. You st- right? can't have that. Yeah. I guess we just can't envision that as people. And once their term, their six-month term is over, citizens have three days in which to file complaints about their activities. And if they warrant it, judicial proceedings against them will be initiated. Oh, no so pressure. you to be careful. You will be held to account. Um, if this practice of having two heads of state that cycles quickly sounds familiar, it is based, or they're saying San Marino might be, yeah, it's directly based because San Marino is so close to Italy, off Roman councils and it's that's where it's from and they still do it so they are built off the Roman Republic and they never changed it since then and it's still in effect which I think is pretty did cool they, did they seem to like like it like is it working well for them just seems yeah. like a lot of a turnover like I don't like sometimes it takes me six months just to like plan what I want right. to do and like oh no, I wonder no. like how much gets done and you can serve more than once so once you served it's not like you can never serve again so yeah, but can you serve? You can't serve consecutively, though. Can't serve consecutively. Fun fact: San Marino has had more female heads of state than any other country. Oh, but I, I mean, do because you got to cycle through state than any other country. But still, I like that. Um, here's another San Marino fun fact: In 1543, the nephew of Pope Julius III attempted to conquer it, but it was too foggy, and they he got lost. So he did not conquer it. Um, Britain accidentally bombed them once during World War II because they thought they were helping Germany when they were not. They have remained neutral in both world wars. San Marino, fun fact, the government of San Marino made Abraham Lincoln an honorary citizen and he accepted. Abraham Lincoln was a fan of San Marino, as is Florida. So basically... I could not find a satisfactory answer to why Florida performed at Eurovision, except that the Italian singer Senhit did this song called Adrenalina. And you have to have an original song for Eurovision, but as long it's kind of like Oscar rules, as long as it came out in the year Eurovision's happening, you can do it. And so when she made this song, she um, had him rap on the song. He does a verse. And so there was all this thing, like, will he come to Eurovision and do it? And he did. He missed the initial rehearsals in Rotterdam because there was a conflict in his schedule. He was judging a bikini contest in Miami. 
So he almost missed it, but he arrived just in time for the semifinals and he did it. He was there and it was great. Um, He told the BBC earlier this year, he had no prior knowledge of the Eurovision Song Contest before he was approached to do the song, but he loves it. He's a fan now. This is maybe a lie because he's actually written and performed on two other Eurovision songs. Oh, here's a San Marino fun fact. Their only military is the Crossbow Corps. Corps. It's a ceremonial force of 80 volunteers that have crossbows. Oh, goodness. Based on medieval. So medieval it's a good thing there was fog. Good thing there was fog. Yeah, they wouldn't have stood a chance. So I'm really, I learned a lot about San Marino. Um, yeah, I couldn't really find any satisfactory answer. I apologize, but I hoped everyone enjoyed um, learning more as I did about San Marino, San Marino about yeah. Europe. And um, I will say this research I've done is nothing to compare to the Eurovision research I want to highlight, which is art history research. If you think art history research isn't helpful, let me tell you the, here's the spoiler. I'm going to spoil who won 2021 Eurovision now. So, so if you don't want to hear my spoilers, I'm about to spoil that Italy won. Oh my gosh. It's an amazing performance and you should go watch it and they deserve to win. But there was controversy because backstage during the judging in the green room, it looked like the lead singer of the Italian band did cocaine. He like bends over. Oh, I saw, I saw a thing about that. I did not, it was completely out of context. And it was like, it was a picture of that, of the man being bent over a table. And the headline was like, so-and-so says that experts did not do drugs. And I was like, what are, I don't know what we're talking about. So that's okay. <laughs> and he was like, I will take a drug test. She using the power of art history. And I will link her video here in the show notes. Um, proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was not doing cocaine because his head was nowhere near the table. And she used her knowledge of Renaissance art and linear perspective to map out the space of his head, of the table, to prove his head was nowhere near the table. And I just love it at the end. She's like, I will die on this hill. I know art history. I know formal analysis. He did not. And then the drug test came back and he did not. So, But she was like, I, I don't need a drug test. I already know. Exactly. She used her degree in Renaissance art history to clear Italy from drug charges in Eurovision 2021. That is that research. That's that putting it to use. So that's it. Oh, okay. Let's recap. Let's recap. My weird thing was all the anxious dogs now that humans are re-entering the world without them. Based on your firsthand experience. Right. My weird thing was the podcast um, about the podcast science versus about seeds, again, seeds and burying seeds and hunting for seeds and how it made me cry and summed up a lot of things I was thinking about last episode. My pop culture thing was the audiobooks, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and no one is talking about this, specifically how they have such drastically different cadences and how it messed up my internal monologue for a while. I can't even imagine those in short succession. Um, my pop culture, oh yeah, pop culture was the live stream play by Fake Friends, This American Wife, about 
Real Housewives of New York, but so much more. My research thing was started out armadillo's expansion in the u.s and became about armadillo's reproductive habits my research thing was trying to answer the question of why Florida was at eurovision but learning about geopolitics and propaganda and san marino okay, okay. so we know we know the very clear connection between the Science Versus podcasts and the seeds are very good at waiting to germinate and armadillos are very good at waiting to in, to have babies. Implant, implant. So and then armadillos are in Florida and fluoride is from Florida. So that just, I'm going to throw that out there. The armadillo connection. <laughs> okay. Well, and the anxious dog. So there's, you know, the armadillos and the seeds and bottles. Those are both about the conditions meeting your needs. And the anxious dogs, their conditions are shifting in a way that is oh, yeah. not meeting the needs that they became used to. And Eurovision is this, is, is this supposed to be, they're saying, ostensibly, my word of the day, um, this unchanging thing. The rules have been the same mm. since 1956. It is a song contest, nothing more. And yet the conditions of the world make it wildly different year to year. Even a simple lyric like set me free can, can mean, can just be head spinningly right. off base, depending on who's singing it for what country and what year. And maybe, I don't know if this is a stretch, but it's like, I mean, because the audiobook thing, it's not even about the content of it. It's about the like, the content, like the, oh, like, because it's the way that it sounds in your head, right? Like, it's not, it's not what the words are conveying. It's literally like the, the condition that it creates in your brain, right? Like, this is the, the way that your brain has to work to process this kind of sentence structure. So it feels like something about like, you, you Sorry, like, go on. You had a breakthrough. I had a breakthrough. I don't know if it's too, I don't know. Okay, so you're talking about the way, so it's not even about the book necessarily or the content of the book. It's the cadence and how that worms its way into your brain and your being in a way, which I get. And that's so interesting to me that you said that the cadence is what's so different about those, not even the content. And then we're talking about the context, kind of what you set the stage with versus what's going on around it, make those things so different. You can say, this is, this is what we want you to see. This is what it is. And then Ooh, that's and not that, at all. And that fits the, with this American wife thing too, because you were talking about how like, you know, a lot of the housewives aren't even housewives, but in this particular yeah. context, it doesn't. So it's something about, because like the seed is a housewife. Right. Reality, because they in the um and what I read from the the dramaturge, they say something. Let me try to find it. Um like reality is not life itself. You know that so much fakeness is an excess of reality. There's these. And then I also, when I was talking about this American wife, I mentioned the We Shape Our Tools 
and then our tools shape us. That quote often gets misattributed to Marshall McLuhan. Mm -hmm. He's one of my favorite people to teach, mainly because he has this really catchy thing where he says the medium is the message. And I'm wondering if that isn't our fortune cookie this week, right? Because I love teaching the medium is the message. He's talking a lot about, um, he has these ideas of like orality and literacy and how, how we're consuming knowledge shapes our culture. And he talks a lot about like the printing press when we become literate it, he, his ultimate argument, and I like teaching this to students because they're like, no, you can't say that. Like he's very provocative, but what does this, what if we analyze it? What does it mean? Right. The medium is the message. He says, it doesn't matter. The medium of a book is the message. Yeah. Book is the message. It doesn't matter what that book says. Ultimately for how our whole culture and reality is shaped, it matters that we're consuming the knowledge via book. And it, any book is the same as any other book. It just matters that we are consuming book. The message is the medium of book. And I wonder if that fits. Like, Yeah, I mean, it definitely is like, because all of these things fit with the, that the context is what created. Because, I mean, you yeah. know, my dog was not my dog in that moment, right? Because he had gotten placed into a context that didn't fit him and that he he wasn't prepared to be in. And the seeds in the bottle, like the seed's still a seed no matter what you do to it, but because they're sort of manipulating it into this false waiting period. They also period. this really cool thing. They're like, this seed is 120 years old, but the sprout is new. It's a new <laughs> sprout. And that dichotomy is so cool. Yeah, your dog's been to that house so many times before. Well, and I mean, it fits for my audiobook thing, but it also fits specifically for the book I was talking about, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, because she was, you know, taken into different because she by the time that you're at the book's end, she's been alive for over 300 years and the world has been changing around her, but she hasn't left well. She <laughs> is not supposed to have been able to leave marks on the world, right? Um, you can Ooh, I gotta figure out what that means. Um, so what do we have left? So we got the weird thing. I think, and we've got everything. We got everything. Armadillos are about waiting for the conditions. So now it's just, do, do we feel okay with using someone else's quote as the, as the send it off? I think as long as we're like, hey. Attribute it. We attribute it and we say, we are mis- we're misreading it a bit. It's in quotation marks and his name is on there. Yeah, so it's like they have, they have quotes on fortune yeah, cookies. Yeah, absolutely. We have to embrace all the different facets. The medium of fortune cookie. <laughs> There's no message because the medium is just fortune cookie. So we don't even have to have one. This we're just going to hand you a fortune cookie. There's a paper in there. It just doesn't say anything, but that's fine. Just so you're got consuming the, the knowledge via fortune cookie. So the message is fortune cookie. But ultimately it says, if you were going to look at it, quote, the medium is the message. Marshall McLuhan. The end. There you go.